0: Luke chapter 7, we have the continuation of this uh, really um, revelation of Jesus, who he is, uh, not just to those who have been with him from the Sermon on the Mount, not just to those who have experienced the the healing of this widow's son uh, or the Centurion uh, and his messengers but this is a revelation that comes in connection to the understanding of those who had followed John the Baptist uh, even from the beginning. Now we haven't talked about John the Baptist for a long time like he's just been like straight out of the mix he got cut out of the scene, Pretty early on, I think the last time we looked at him was in chapter 3. Now we're in chapter 7. And so quite a bit of time has gone by, and John has uh, been completely removed from the story. But there's some important components that we need to know and understand about John. Number one, he has disciples still. If you look back at verse 18 uh, of chapter 7, this is what we see. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So, we have here that there are those who have followed John from the beginning, from his uh, institution of being out in the wilderness and calling people and being this kind of uh, wild man in the desert, formed in the the mold and the shape of the prophet Elijah, and you find that there were those who uh, followed him, but then also we have uh, that there are those who continue to hear him to heed his words and his messages Uh, and his messages were those words which testified of Jesus now as we hear about John he's got these disciples who are reporting back to him they're doing a little bit of research and it says that they reported all these things back to him now what are these things we find that of course these are uh, the different healings and teachings that Jesus has been communicating this stretches all the way back Probably uh, to uh, chapter four, all the way through chapter six. All the things that have happened, all the uh, the people that Jesus has healed, the paralyzed man, the raising uh, this widow's um, son, uh, healing the centurion servant, uh, unpacking for John the Sermon on the Mount and explaining there what exactly Jesus was communicating telling about the the formation and the selection of the 12 apostles, healing this man with a withered hand, uh, having this confrontation with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, cleansing a leper, uh, healing a paralytic, like all these crazy things are happening. And it seems like there there were those who were following amongst the crowd, and they go back and they now communicate to John, hey, here's what's going on. And as they share this, uh, John has to get this report secondhand. Now, the Gospel of Luke doesn't tell us this. Uh, we get a little bit more insight in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, but the Gospel of Luke last leaves us with John, um, John the Baptist uh, specifically, in uh, Luke chapter 3. We don't get a refresher in Luke chapter 7, but the last time we catch Luke, or John in Luke chapter 3, we read this, Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias. So this is, remember, John had this confrontation with uh, Herod, and he's like saying like, hey, you can't be like having like these adulterous relationships. And, uh, you know, he kind of confronts him about this. And for all these evil things that Herod had done, uh, he, we're told in verse 20 of Luke chapter 3, locks John up in prison. The historian Josephus goes on to tell us uh, that uh, John was imprisoned at a fortress east of the Dead Sea called Machaerus, and he had been uh, in this place uh, it seems from this moment all the way through to chapter 7 so he has spent a considerable amount of time imprisoned and so he has these disciples who will go out and gather the information who will come and report back to him and they share what's going on particularly what's happening here with Jesus. And so, as they tell him what's going on, John calls two of the disciples to him in verse 19, uh, and he sends them to the Lord, to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? He gives them a message. They faithfully go and share the same message. Verse 20, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come? or shall we look for another? They faithfully replicate the message. They're not trying to twist it. They're not trying to bring confusion. They are given a message. They are faithful to convey the message. It's important that this is not mixed up. This is the question that John is really asking. Are you the one? Are you the person who we're expecting? Are you really who you say you are, Jesus? He is bringing this message. This is not the a question of these messengers not the question of these disciples this is the question of john john the baptist perhaps he's puzzled by the news that comes to him of these great miracles and teachings of the radical confrontations that jesus has with the pharisees that he has the ability to uh, raise this widow's son and heal the centurion's servants that all of these things are coming into view of many people perhaps he's aware of these things he's hearing these reports but yet all the time john's in prison this isn't seeming to bring the impact that perhaps john was anticipating if jesus really is who he says he is um you know shouldn't things be a little bit different here shouldn't things play out a bit a little bit differently are you the one who is to come or do we look for another now i want you to see this that john is asking these questions of jesus based on his own expectations i expected this jesus but things don't seem to be going how i expected and so i'm coming to you with the question are you are you really the one Are you really the one who has come to rescue and save, to deliver us all? If Jesus truly was the Messiah, if he truly was who he said he was, why am I still in prison? Why am I still locked up, Jesus? Like, what's going on? If you're really the one, what's happening here? Why am I in this situation? This is all about the expectations that John has his disciples they don't even have these questions they're not the ones who are bringing this they see what Jesus is doing it's John who is in his own situation and saying don't you see me Jesus I thought you would have a greater impact in my situation I thought that you would do something don't you realize that I'm here that I'm suffering that I'm locked up I thought you would do something See, these are John's expectations of Jesus. His expectations, they feel very real, very relatable. Because isn't this the same perspective that we often have? We think life is going to go a certain way. We think that our negotiations, our communications, our relationships, our path, our plan is going to go a certain way. We have expectations that it will follow this path. If I do this, then this will happen. And the result of that, then, will be what we have calculated. We have expectations that these things will happen. We have expectations that these things will come to pass. Our expectations, whether we believe it to be so um, or not, are expectations that are built on our own knowledge, our own desires, our own perspective. And here, in this particular moment, he is sharing his own expectations of Jesus. He doesn't believe who he says he is. Jesus is, is not believing, or excuse me, John is not believing the truth of who Jesus says he is. Jesus has not changed. But John has expectations. This is the way that we often relate to Jesus in the same perspective Jesus has not changed but yet we have difficulty believing him because he is not meeting our expectations he has not fallen short he has not been unfaithful we have had false expectations we have had false desires we have thought I want him to do this he is going to accomplish this I'm going to to contribute in this way and in return I will receive this we negotiate without actually speaking to him. Of course, Jesus is going to honor my efforts and good work by doing exactly what uh, you know I want him to do. If you consider for a moment that the entirety of uh, of the covenantal relationship between God and Uh, Abraham is built on the fundamental fact of the rejecting of his core identity as a rich man in a city where he is known. And then he tells him, you're going to leave and you're going to go to a place that I'm going to show you. He doesn't even give him the opportunity to say, it's going to be within a reasonable distance of your family. He doesn't say you're going to still have your wealth. He doesn't say any of those things. He just says, go and I'm going to show you where you're going to go. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you to go to this particular place. He says, just keep going, and I'll tell you when you're there. It's a fundamental uh, reshaping of this man's story. He was well-known. He had status. He had riches in this society and in this culture. And he is giving up all of those things to follow the word of the Lord, to go and set out and chart a new path. He's not given any sort of uh, promises at that point. He's just told, go. But yet, as he goes, he tries to make a little pit stop along the way. He goes, like, you know, a couple miles outside of the city, and he's like, okay, yeah, I went. Like, this seems pretty good. Like, I'll, you know, he basically goes to his dad's hometown is what happens. He, like, leaves his original city, and he goes to, like, his dad's hometown. Come on. I mean, it's like, could there be any more of a lazy move? It's a logical move, but it's a lazy move. He goes to the next safe move. But what what? What's happening here is through the story of Abraham, it's a fundamental deconstruction of saying, you're not going to be in charge. You're not going to chart your own path. It's a relationship of trust. He sends him out, and the Lord makes great and grand promises to Abraham, but yet they are delayed in such a way to where Abraham's like, I thought I was going to have, like, be, you know, eventually be this father of many nations, but I don't have any kids. Like, what's going on here? Will he trust? And then he finally comes to the place where he is given the the promised son. The Lord gives him the promised son, and then he's like, okay, now I want you to sacrifice your son. And then, again, he's like, okay. And then the Lord stays his hand and provides a sacrifice in its stead. You have this ongoing trajectory of, of trust, where the Lord is giving baby steps a little bit at a time to say, here's what I'm going to do with you. A little bit more, a little bit more. Trust me. And in our text, this is what we see. John has been given just enough, but now he's coming to the threshold. He's like, this doesn't make any sense, I'm pretty sure you say you are who you said you are. Like, we had a pretty tight relationship. We did the baptism thing. Like, all this stuff is lining up. There's a lot of things that seem pretty cool about this. Like, seems like things are going on out there. Like, you're healing people and some cool things are happening. But, like, why am I in prison? He thinks the coming of Jesus equals his liberation out of prison to a certain extent here. Like, that's kind of what's happening. Why are my expectations not being met? John is in the story for a particular purpose. He is extremely blessed. He has an extremely uh, particular purpose. But he's, he's not there to get everything that he ever wanted or desired. He's there to be in relationship to the God of Israel. He's there to be in relationship with Jesus. This is not about him trying to get what he wants. This is about him trying to know who God is. He's in the process, just like any of the other disciples, of knowing who Jesus is more and more each day. And so while John has done these great and amazing things, he's still in process, just like we are. We've got to, as Jesus said, be willing to deny ourselves, to take up your cross, to follow him. The Apostle Paul said that we should be living sacrifices, that we should be willing to uh, deny uh, ourselves to be uh, living sacrifices, to lay ourselves upon the altar each day to, as he says uh, in his uh, New Testament letters, to die daily, to put to death the desires of the old man and to pursue Christ, to find out what Jesus is doing and where he's going and how he's working. And not to plot and plan your day and say, here's what I want to do, and here's how I want to do things, and here's how I, there's a lot of I that can get involved, but we are trying to work together with God, with his work. What is he doing? How is he at work? How is he among his people? There are many opportunities to doubt who Jesus is, to doubt his work, his plans. And he comes with natural questions Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? His question there is not so much one of complete doubt where he's saying, are you the one who is to come? Like, maybe I misread it, or you are the one who is to come and I need to readjust my perspective. Am I looking for another or are you the one to come? Yes, and I need to reorient how I'm thinking about it. He is the one who is to come and you don't need to look for another so the expectation the signs that John would have been looking for perhaps some of them may have been wrong and now he needs to reorient himself and see how Jesus is actually working among his people in this society in this time this is the work that we have to do daily because we know he is the one but we've got to daily focus on not looking for another because that another is usually ourselves Serving ourselves, serving what we want, or serving, uh, you know, the desires of someone else who we want their approval really badly. You know, you may have a a parent or or a supervisor at work or uh, a colleague, or there may be other people who you're looking to uh, receive their approval. Look, the long and short of it is like their approval does not really matter, right? Because who can stop the work of the Lord? If God's going to do something, he's going to do something, and no one is going to stop him from doing it. So as much as people may or may not approve of you, no one can stop the work of the Lord. Seek him first, work unto him, work faithfully unto him, and he will line things up to where you are successful in the things that he's leading you into. It's going to be a glorious partnership together because you're working with the ability, the skills that he has given to you. Now, when Jesus uh, responds to these messengers, they come and they say, Are you the one? John wants to know. Are you the one or do we look for another? Here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, Yeah, I'm the one. Don't look for another. He gives them more of what they have already reported. He gives them exactly what they've already witnessed. Look at verse 21. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind he bestowed sight so he participates now in demonstrating his supernatural power and authority over the supernatural realm and uh the natural realm he deals with the demonic he deals with the physical he deals with sickness disease He gives vision to the blind. He just comes straight out and he's like, watch this. Like all this crazy stuff. Why does he do that? He's not trying to to demonstrate that he is explicitly powerful and that he has uh, this miraculous streak in him. But rather, he's connecting it to a greater narrative, a greater story. Look at verse 22. He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. So two things, eyewitness, seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. So this laundry list of things that have been accomplished. Rather than answer directly, Jesus points this same group of messengers who have already testified he points them to his explicit works done all within a short period of time here it says in that hour i'm not sure if it was like in exactly an hour he's just like watch this or if it was like okay he started from that moment and they stuck around until he was like okay i'm done who knows how long this took but he says here watch this he doesn't respond directly he doesn't use these words to give them he gives them the vision he gives them the ability to hear what's happening it's a sensory experience he makes them eyewitnesses he has them participate and then he tells them go and tell john go and communicate what you have seen and heard now he does this because he's anchoring this in the work and promise of the prophecies in the book of isaiah that are related to the messiah i'm going to run through just five of them really quick here to kind of carry us along um because we don't have time to unpack more or all of them but isaiah 26:19, your dead shall live their bodies shall rise you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy for your due is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Chapter 29, verse 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Uh, Chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man uh, shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert." Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So, Jesus just he he has this whole historical context of all these prophecies of the book in the book of isaiah and he's just like okay like i'm just gonna like fulfill a bunch of them again right here in your presence so that way you can be like okay yeah he just ran through like the entire book of isaiah he is who he says he is like that's basically what's happening here he's like watch this let's go he is trying to empower them not just with words but with the visuals with the with the sights and sounds so that they can go back and convincingly say to John, he is the one. Jesus draws John's attention to the works of, that that are described in in the uh, book of Isaiah. Here are the evidences of who he is. And these would have been uh, connected in John's mind, to the inbreaking kingdom of God, it's here, it's arriving. He would have known this is surely it. If these things are happening, it would have demonstrated to uh, to those who were there, but also to John, that Jesus is not just a prophet; he is not just someone who is a messenger on the scene, but he is the person who is bringing this new kingdom into being. The coming of a new era, a new time, is brought by this king. Now, Jesus ends with one kind of, kind of, kind of uh, final word here for John the Baptist in verse 23. He says this, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's a little bit of a zinger there, right? <laughs> At the end, here's all these things that I do, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In a sense, maybe this was a little bit of a, um you know you have expectations but don't be offended when I don't meet your expectations. Don't be offended, don't be dismayed when I'm not giving you exactly what you think you deserve or what you want. Jesus did not fulfill the messianic expectations of of his day. All the Jews thought that he would come in and overthrow Rome and release them all, and there would be this uh, grand kingdom that would come in at that very moment. I'm sure John was hoping to be uh, released from prison. But Jesus is aware here that his words, his message, is going to be difficult for people to, to receive, to accept, because he doesn't meet our expectations. He declares who he is. He says who he is. Now, he sends John's messengers back. They go back to communicate. And now Jesus turns to address the crowds. Right? Remember, there's a group of people here who are listening. Now that John's messengers have come in and in the presence of these crowds potentially shaken their confidence in who Jesus is, he determines to resolve that fear. And he asks them, why did you guys even listen to John in the first place? Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts." So now he he comes and he tells this crowd, like, why did you guys even follow him in the first place? Why did you even go out there? A reed shaken by the wind? When people went out to the desert near the Jordan? When they made their way out there? Did they go out there to find? A scenic view? Oh man, it's like really great out here. We're going to head out and receive just like this wonderful landscape. No, they're in the desert. They're in the wilderness. Did they go out to see a man who was wandering around in these difficult and harsh conditions to give a comfortable message? John is not someone who is going to be easily shaken, tossed about by the wind. So he says, you guys didn't go out there for the view. You guys didn't go out there to see some, like, weak person. He circles back in verse 25. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? He's like, did you guys go out to the desert to just go look at a rich man dressed elegantly? Is that why you went? He says, no, that's the type of person who who is in living in luxury in king's courts that's not john's apparel he's he's got like the like the wild tunic and the and the camel hair belt and like all like he's no he's just kind of like this like scraggly beard honey eaten like grasshopper guy like what's happening here this is not the like posh luxury uh dwelling individual And what Jesus is pointing out here for this group of people is that when you went out to follow John, when you went out to hear John, you did not go out for a comfortable message. You did not go out for ease. You didn't go out for, to see his clothes or the view. You went out to hear what he had to say. There's power in his words. There's power in his communication. There is uh, an emphasis that comes uh, from the power of God in his life. He uh, circles back a final time in verse 26. What then did you go out to see? Again, he asks, what caused you to go out into the wilderness? He says, a prophet, yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you as we hear these words from jesus he's telling us that john is surely a prophet but he is more than a prophet now what does it mean that he is more than a prophet because right all of a sudden you hear that and you're like okay this is getting a little bit weird here like what else could you be besides more than a prophet Well, he says here that that this guy is also a messenger he has a particular specific role He is one who is fulfilling a particular role, and and he is described as being a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So he is a prophet, but he's a preparer, a preparer for the Lord. And he assumes a particular position among the prophets and is the most prominent among the prophets as he has been selected to play a particular role. And when Jesus describes John, he is ascribing to him this particular role, and he uses the language that is ripped straight out of Malachi chapter 3. In verse 1, we read this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts so jesus takes this and he flips it around and he starts using different tenses to say he is the one who's coming i'm the one who's coming he's preparing my way and that john is this prophet he is a preparer of the way and jesus says he's so important so pivotal to this plan that he is described as Extremely great. Look at verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I mean, that is a statement right there. Out of all the people who are born, nobody's greater than John. He's the greatest of the prophets, he is supreme. Now, this does not relate to his personal character, but rather his position as the forerunner, as the preparer of the way of the Lord. There were other people who perhaps uh, may have been more zealous, who have shown more devotion, but nobody else had the honor of announcing the arrival of the king. Only one person had that job. Only one person had that privilege, that opportunity, and that is John the Baptist. The praise for John is like just over the top, like super extraordinary. But then, immediately after, like this crazy statement nobody's greater than John, all of a sudden we get an additional clause. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, John is the greatest. But the least person in the kingdom is greater than John. Like, what is happening here? So, he's already said there's a pinnacle that cannot be reached by anybody else, but everybody else is going to reach it. Like, how one, how can Jesus say this? Two, uh, how is this even possible? Spoiler alert, John dies and he doesn't get the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, uh, he just kind of doesn't ever get to really experience the fullness of the kingdom of God in the way that You and I do. He doesn't get to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God in the way that the early church does, where God sends his spirit to dwell in man, where John has prepared the way of the Lord to come and dwell in his temple. But as he sends his spirit into you and I, as we trust in Christ for salvation, to dwell within us, John prepares the way for that. But he doesn't experience it he lived just on the edge of the kingdom of god but he didn't get to experience the blessings of that kingdom for himself jesus makes these grand statements in the presence of all these people he's setting things right then we come to verse 29 and we get the response of the people. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So the people hear the reasoning, they got the scriptural evidences, they, Jesus recognizes John as a prophet, and therefore the uh, baptizing work of John. As important for the preparation of Israel to receive its king. Many of those people had been baptized by John. They've received his message. Jesus ratifies his message. And so they declare that God is just. They're like, Jesus is right on. All this makes sense. Everything that Jesus said about John, it's legit. So while he sends the messengers back to John saying like, hey, like, yeah, I'm really the one. When he turns to the people, he just, like, talks John up like crazy. He's like, John's the best. He's been super faithful. He's crushing it. He's declaring the way. But then we get the response of the Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes, the religious leaders. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. That's a statement there, right? rejecting the purpose of God for themselves that's a scary statement to decide that you are going to reject the purpose of God for your life they reject God's plan for salvation John the Baptist had announced a new era a new way for God's redemptive work to take place the coming of the Messiah, the uh, inbreaking kingdom of God. And these people, they did not want to receive it. So he sees that there are two groups of people, one that receives and one that does not. And again, Jesus observes the crowd in response. One group's excited, they declare that God is just. Another group rejects the work. But those who reject the work that Jesus has done, those who reject John's work, they have influence in Israel. They have the ability to influence this group that does receive it. So now Jesus calls out their inconsistent behavior to make sure that that is put in place. And that the, the people who are receiving it and declaring God is just are not going to be bullied into changing their mind by, the, by these people who are rejecting God's plan who are rejecting what God has laid out, the purpose of God for them. And so now he turns and he speaks to them with uh, two examples, really, here. One of a wedding and another of a funeral. Look at verse 31. To what, then, shall I compare the people of this generation? So Jesus is here speaking to uh, the crowd, but he's aiming this at the Pharisees and the scribes. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. So Jesus tells them these people, they're like little kids, they have no sense they don't participate in the context of what's actually happening they don't understand the gravity of what's happening now notice here he doesn't reject any of these situations he doesn't say oh you should have been doing a wedding or you should have been doing a funeral he says the response to each is wrong there is no response is what he's actually getting at the first one that he highlights here is this mock wedding where you would have a grand celebration and there would be those who'd be playing the flutes and there would be this big uh, big group of people who are dancing in circles, it's essentially kind of like a uh, Middle Eastern mosh pit. right? Everyone kind of like running in circles and connected together in this great time of community and celebration, a wonderful thing. And when the flute starts, everyone starts to get up and be like, all right, like right, let's do this, let's party, let's celebrate. He's like, the flute came on and nobody, nobody did anything. Everyone just kind of stays stayed seated. Nobody participated. He's like, okay, maybe we got it wrong. He's like, so then we played a funeral song, a melancholy song, a dirge. This is a mock funeral Jesus kind of highlights here. A time of sorrow and mourning and weeping, seriousness. And you did not weep. It did not bring forth the proper emotions that that should have brought forth. And he's saying here that these uh, scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, they didn't want to be a part of the wedding or the funeral. They didn't respond to either. He goes on in verse 33, and he unpacks it a bit. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine so if you recall john the baptist is given to a Nazarite vow so he can't drink any wine he's not supposed to cut his hair he's not supposed to drink any wine Uh, and then also um he has explicitly been someone who is very religious right he's made in the in the in the model of the prophet elijah he has the, these, the attire that these Old Testament prophets would have had. He is specifically called, um, called out as uh, being in that same spirit. And the Jewish leaders, they rejected him. John the Baptist, you're the funeral. You're very serious. You're coming, bringing your message of things need to change. Something's, something's happening here. We cannot keep going on. And they said, Oh, don't listen to John. He's got an unclean spirit. He's, he's got a demon. We can't listen to him. But then in verse 34, Jesus calls out. He says, I come. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. So John, he doesn't eat or drink when he comes the son of man comes with a different perspective he's the wedding and you say look at him he's partying he's a glutton and a drunkard he's with all the people who are bad he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners sinners the Jewish leaders they didn't like Jesus either they criticized him because he wasn't hanging out with people who were who were very serious who were trying to follow the rules very rigidly he's with people who who were sinning no matter what ministry the Lord uh, used to reach these religious leaders they always had something to criticize they always rejected it I mean think about this earlier they have a problem with Jesus because him and his disciples they don't fast they're like, Jesus, you guys, you never fast. But the disciples of John, they fast, right? So oh, in that moment, they're okay with John fasting. Oh, John, he's so holy. He's good. He fasts, and, and you don't fast. So they're being extremely inconsistent, even among their own uh, perspectives there. They should have accepted John because they accepted that him and his disciples, they fast. But they reject John and his message. Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, but the Jewish leaders rejected both the ministries of Jesus and John. He leaves it with this final statement, which appears to be a a proverbial saying from this time in verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus gives these two uh, examples of the wedding and the funeral. He tells them, you've got to respond in some way. You've got to choose. You've got to have a starting place to go from. Are you going to start where things are very serious and move from there? And that message of John ultimately points to Jesus as the fulfillment? Or are you going to see that more clearly and just come directly to Jesus? He's looking to evoke a response when the Pharisees reject the plan of God for their lives. They receive neither but jesus ends by saying wisdom is justified by all her children now although we have the response here of the scribes and the pharisees although we have the uh, people who were there listening who see that god is just and they receive him we also have john he's got to make a choice is jesus the one or does he look for another is he the one that's the fundamental question that each of these groups has to make if he is the one if he is who he said he is then uh, we should respond in kind and jesus isn't going to force himself upon any of these people he's not going to come and say you've got to believe this you've got to follow this this is the way or else i'm going to come after you know he allows these people to decide to make their choice to hear the plan of god for their lives and to reject that much like the scribes and pharisees are described as doing here foolish decision to reject the purpose of god for them but jesus leaves it with these words Wisdom is justified by all her children. Simple, but essentially means you'll see how how it all comes together. A teaching is going to be shown to be wise based on what it produces. What will come... Of what you're building your house on he's circling back to the sermon on the mount are you going to build your house upon the rock are you going to be the tree that's anchored uh, into a good soil that's connected to a good source that's going to produce good fruit he's circling back wisdom is justified by all her children if you are building your philosophy if you're making your decision based on a certain set of expectations a certain understanding what comes from that is going to either satisfy you or fail you john's expectation was that he would be freed from prison john's expectation is that the messiah would come in and overthrow rome the expectation of the jews is that they would that that jesus would come in and or the messiah would come in and and that liberate the entire land and that the jews would be ruling But the expectation that Jesus sets for us is simply this I am who I said I am. My authority is complete, it is exhaustive, it is comprehensive. I have authority and I rule over sin, I rule over death, I conquer disease, the blind see, the lame walk. He is who he says he is. And so we expect him to be the king. And when you're connected to the king, you always have the ability to walk forward in victory. Because our king, he never loses. We're not going to have any L's on that record. We're only here for the wins. He's undefeated. So we want to be connected to him in the same way that he has exhorted us to be in the Sermon on the Mount, in his demonstration of his power over uh, the healing of the centurion servant. The centurion got it, will we? We've got a continual summary, again, coming back to those same principles, those same, uh, that same focus so that we might Determined that we are going to have that same uh formation in our lives as well that jesus is who he says he is and that we're not going to try to be the one but we're going to let him be the one we have no need to look for another there is no other there's nowhere else to go and we can trust him wholeheartedly completely and without reservation let's pray lord we are grateful for the truth of the scriptures. We're grateful that we can trust you. That you always do what you say you're going to do. That you always meet our needs. That you always come to us in your timing with the perfect resources, with the perfect word. And so that we rejoice in your work and what you're doing. We want to join you and we want to know you and we want to um draw near to you. And so, Lord, as we reflect upon this passage, we want to remind ourselves daily that you are the one that we know and love and enjoy, that you have given up your own life so that we might have that opportunity, that we might have that access. And so, Lord, work in our hearts Do that work by the Holy Spirit. That you know what needs to be done. Like we we can't even begin to know the things that are not are there. Some of it is so complicated and tangled and confusing, but you know. And so, Lord, work, work within us. We love you. Amen.